Well, today we continue our series in the Old Testament and have come to Micah. Micah was unique in a sense among the prophets. I say that because he ministered both to the northern and the southern tribes of Judah. Now, he must have had some diplomatic skills to be able to do that. It was also Micah, you recall, who prophesied the birthplace of the Messiah. He prophesied some 700 years before Jesus was born that he would be born in the small town of Bethlehem, about five miles outside of Jerusalem. His prophecy is quoted in the New Testament. Now, you might recall when the Magi came to Herod, that Herod asked the question of them, Where is this Messiah? Where is this one you have come to worship? Where is he supposed to be born? And the Bible says in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And then they quote the prophecy of Micah. So it has been written by the prophet. And here's the quote. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Micah then, hundreds of years before the Messiah was born, pinpointed the small town in which he would be born. It has been said that his message was a practical message. Brian Atwood wrote, Micah was known for being practical, down to earth. Basically, his message was twofold. It was a message of repentance towards God and respect towards one's fellow man. So it deals both with the vertical relationship, repentance towards God, and the horizontal relationship, respect toward one's fellow man. Now take your Bibles and we'll look at Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel... He will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? 
As we look at our text today, we probably should establish a background. What was the condition of Israel at the time of his prophecy? And it's interesting to me because it's not a great deal different from our own time. First of all, as we look at the passage of Scripture, we see that the politicians were corrupt. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones? That was the condition of the politicians at that time. Do you remember when Tom Brokaw used to do the special, I think it was on a weekly basis, the Fleecing of America? And in that, he would highlight the corruption of America's leaders. Well, when we look at Israel at this time, we see the corruption of the leaders. They have been taking advantage of God's people. Matthew Henry wrote, Princes and prophets, when they faithfully discharge the duty of their office, are to be highly honored above other men. But when they betray their trust and act contrary to it, they should hear of their faults. How is it that we seemingly, in perpetuity, get leaders who are corrupt? How does that happen? Well, it probably is because that's who we usually select. Now, what are the qualifications of a leader? Well, as I look at it, The qualifications you and I look for are not necessarily the same qualities that we find in Scripture. When we are looking for a candidate, what do we look for? Well, we want someone who has experience that makes us feel comfortable. That's the reason usually we elect governors as our president because they have executive experience and we think then they would be able to handle the office. So we look for people who have experience. We're looking for intelligence. We want someone who is intelligent. We'd like to think that the leaders are smarter than we are. Now, I'm not sure that they are, but we would like to think about that because it is a frightening thought to think that they are no more, that they're not any smarter than I am. I want to think that they are smarter than I am, don't you, with the problems that they have to handle? So we look for someone we believe to be intelligent. We want someone who is pleasant. The pundits tell us that that we normally elect someone with whom we will be comfortable having in our homes for the next four, six years. So we want someone who is pleasant. So when we're looking then for our candidates, for our leaders, we look for people who are experienced. We look for people who are pleasant. we, We look for people who are intelligent. But are those the qualities that we find in the Bible? Is that what the Bible tells us we are to look for when we're looking for leaders? Uh, There's not anything wrong with those things. I do want someone who has experience. I want someone who is intelligent. I want someone who's pleasant. But are those the qualities that we should look for in our leaders? Well, when I look at the Bible, I find that God's qualifications are somewhat different. For instance, one quality that God God's Word says we are to look for is righteousness. Now, let me ask you, how many of you, when you are looking for a leader, ask the question, is this a righteous person? Because that's one of the qualifications of Scripture. 
The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. So the Scripture says that when we have leaders who are righteous, then we have reason to rejoice. And the Bible goes on in Proverbs 16, 12, It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established on righteousness. All right, so what are the qualifications for a leader then, scripturally speaking? Well, they are supposed to be righteous. We are to look for one who is righteous. Another characteristic is wisdom. Now, wisdom and knowledge are not the same. Knowledge is something that we learn. The word means to come to know, to recognize. Someone has said that knowledge is what we know. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what we know. Now, the Bible tells us then that wisdom comes from God. I can learn knowledge. I can learn and have knowledge. But according to the Scripture, wisdom comes from God. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse number 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the Bible says then that God gives us wisdom. As I think about that, and I'm just now having that thought, I think maybe that's the problem. When I was in school, I was asking God for knowledge. When I took a test, I said, oh, Lord, help me, because I don't remember what that is. Didn't you ask for knowledge? Well, no, knowledge you learn. Wisdom is what God gives. So it is God then who gives them. So what do we need in our leaders? It is someone who has the wisdom of God. So what does the Scripture say? Our leaders should be people who are righteous, they should be people who have wisdom, and people who are separated from bad influences. The Scripture says in Proverbs 25, verse 5, Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Take away the wicked before the leader. When we are looking for leaders, we should also be interested in friends, advisors, counselors, and so forth. Who does this person surround himself or herself with? Because the Bible says that we should have leaders who are separated from bad influences. We should have leaders who try to surround themselves with the people of God who have wisdom. It goes on in Scripture and says it should be someone who is honest. In Proverbs 17, 7, Excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. You know, the Bible says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And we don't like for our leaders not to be honest with us, do we? That was a question. <laughs> Doesn't that irritate you? It does me. When I know that someone is presenting something to me, and I know that they know it's not true, it really aggravates me. Because we want someone who is honest, someone who will tell us the truth. And then our leaders are supposed to be pure. The Bible says in Proverbs 31.3, Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. We have had a, a lot of 
of our leaders who have been unfaithful to their spouses. Now, folks, why in the world would we expect someone who is not faithful to that most basic relationship would be faithful to their constituents? According to the Scripture, if I'm looking for a leader, and the people in Israel at that time were not like this, but according to what the Scripture is saying and the prophet says, we need leaders who are pure. We need leaders who provide security for those most at risk. The proverb says in uh, chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. I expect our leaders to provide security for those who are greatest at risk. And I cannot imagine being a leader and not being committed to supporting the unborn. Those who most need the protection of their laws. I cannot imagine that. So, what does the Bible say? Well, it says that these uh, politicians were corrupt. That's the way it was then. And you might say, and that's the way it is now. But then I go on in there, and I don't particularly like this part of it, but it says their preachers were compromised. In chapter 3, verse number 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry, Peace! But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare, Holy War. The prophets had compromised their holy call. He said they cry, Peace! They cry, Peace and prosperity during a time when the people are perishing. I I know that the message that is popular today is a message of peace and prosperity. The unfortunate thing is is that our people are perishing while that message is being preached. They cry peace when they declare war against those who believe the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God. Matthew Henry said they even prepare war against them. Against them they denounce the judgments of God. So when we look at the background of Israel at this time, the politicians were corrupt, the preachers had compromised, and the people were complacent. Look at chapter 3, verse number 11. Her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they, speaking of the people, yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord... In our midst, calamity will not come upon us. You know what they were saying, what the people were saying? Yeah, our leaders are corrupt, but, you know, they've always been corrupt. Just the way it is. Our preachers compromise. They've always compromised. But look at their conclusion there in verse number 11b. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. It's always been this way, and we will be okay. It's always been this way. Our leaders have always been corrupt. 
Our preachers have always compromised. And we're going to be okay. It's always been that way. That was the condition of Israel at the time. So the scene now moves to the courtroom. And God inquires about their charges in chapter 6, verse number 3. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. God asked them, he said, what, what is it that I have done to you? You see, Israel thought that all the bad things that were happening to them were because of God. And so they had blamed God. God, these bad things are happening because you have allowed them to happen. In 722 B.C., Samaria had fallen. Whose fault was that? It was God's fault. Assyria threatened their security and their freedom. Whose fault is that? It was God's fault. Their leaders were corrupt. Whose fault was that? It was God's fault. See, that's what they thought. They thought that all the bad things that happened to them happened because of God. It was His fault. I'm amazed sometimes and amused others at how we blame God for the bad things that happened to us. Because sometimes it's so utterly ridiculous. Joe Penner and I have talked a number of times and he said, you know, isn't it strange that when there's a storm or there's a tragedy of some sort that we refer to it as what? An act of God. I mean, God's at fault, so we blame God for bad things that happen. So the Lord asked the question. He said, what have I done? He said, how have I wearied you? The truth is, Israel had grown weary of God. And folks, my concern is that for some of us, we grow weary. We get tired. We, we grow weary of, of, of the restrictions of God's Word. You know, I mean, nobody else goes by them. Why should I? We, we grow weary of the commands of the Lord. Do this and don't do that. We grow weary of the results of our actions. We, we just grow weary with it. And yet the Bible says us that be not weary in well-doing. Don't ever become weary. But that's what the Lord asked them. He said, what have I done? And then he says, how have I wearied you? And then God rebuts the charges. He has the witnesses in verse number 1 of chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people. God is saying, all right, I am going to make my case. And He said, the mountains are going to be witnesses. He says, they've seen it all. They've been there. The mountains have been there. Now, you, 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 are, you are saying that I have done these things. You have grown weary of me. He said, but the mountains have been there, and they know the truth. And then the Lord gives testimony of his faithfulness. He said, I redeemed you from slavery. Look at verse number 4 of chapter 6. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. He said, I was the one who redeemed you from Egyptian slavery. Matthew Henry said, the Egyptians held them fast and would not let them go, but God redeemed them. It was God. God is saying, I am the one who redeemed you. 
You were enslaved by the Egyptians. I am the one who redeemed you. I sent the plagues and forced Pharaoh to release you. I'm the one who sent Moses. I'm the one who redeemed you from slavery. He said, I provided guides for you there in verse number 4b. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He said, when you were in the wilderness, I didn't leave you there alone. He said, I sent people to guide you. I sent my prophets to guide you. He said, I turned Balaam's curse into a blessing. Look at verse number 5. My people remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered him and from Shittim to Gilgal in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Matthew Henry commented in bringing them from Shittim, their last lodgment out of Canaan, into Gilgal, their first lodgment in Canaan. There it was between Shittim and Gilgal that upon the death of Moses, Joshua, a type of Christ, was raised up to put Israel in possession of the land of promise. Balaam was to curse them, and God took the curse and turned it into a blessing as he brought them to the promised land. So God rebutted their charges, and then he renders his decision. How do I please God? That's what they ask. Do I do it with burnt offerings? Is that what God wants from me? He wants me to give burnt offerings? Does He want me to sacrifice my children for my sin? Is is that what He's expecting from me? That I give Him my children, I sacrifice them because of my sin? What does God require? So the Lord answers in verse number 8. He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So God then pronounces His judgment. What does God require? What did God require of them? What does God require of us? And He says to do justice. Now that implies that God has made a decision. He says, what do I, what do I require? That you do justice. So God has determined what is expected And ladies and gentlemen, it is expected then that our God who has determined our response expects us to respond accordingly. We are to be committed to doing justice. Now that eliminates situation ethics under which we live today. Today people tell us, well, you know, something might be right in this situation and wrong in that situation, but it is all determined by the situation. Not if you do justice. Not if we order our lives according to the Word of God. If we do justice, that eliminates situation ethics because justice is based on the Word of God. What does God require? Do justice, love mercy. We are to demonstrate towards others the kind of love we want from others. Sometimes we treat people like we do and wonder why they don't love us when we know the answer to the question. Remember what Jesus said, how do people know that we are disciples of Jesus? Well, because they've got Baptists on their churches. How do people know that we 
are his disciples because they love one another. Because they love one another. We are to love as we want to be loved. We are to forgive as we want to be forgiven. Matthew 6, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. You see, folks, we are to be forgiving because we've been forgiven. That's it. Well, I'll forgive when, I'll forgive if, I'll forgive because. No, that's not it. You are to forgive because you have been forgiven. That's it. We forgive because God forgave us. We give grace. That's what it means. And that's the golden rule. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And then he says, walk humbly. When he says walk humbly, that walking implies movement. It implies progress. If you are walking, then you are making progress. And to me, what that is speaking of is, um, is the process of sanctification. I read a verse. It's in, I, I don't remember the version of, the, of which Bible I was reading. But I love this verse. Psalm 32, verse number 8. Write it down because it maybe it'll be a blessing to you. Just tremendous blessing to me when I was writing this. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Isn't that a great verse? God says, I, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. We're in the process of sanctification, becoming like Jesus. If you're a believer, then God is working in your life with all the events of your life to make you like Jesus. I remember once talking with Marion Warren, an evangelist friend of mine, and I said, Marion, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. Do you ever feel that way? I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I'm just not like Jesus. He said, well, Wendell, if you're closer this year than you were last, you're going in the right direction. And that really gives it some perspective, doesn't it? If you're closer this year than you were last, then you're going in the right direction. And that's what should concern us. To walk humbly implies relationship. We walk with God because we have a relationship with God. Well, the question the Lord asked of Israel... I think is a good question for us in verse number 3. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. It could be today that you are rebelling against the Lord. You've rejected the Lord. You don't want the Lord to be the Lord of your life for whatever reason. What's He done to you? Has He been dishonest with you? No. Has he been uncaring? Doesn't care anything about you? No, he gave his son for you. Has he been unkind? No, he's loving. Well, then what will you do with him? See, that was the question the Lord asked of the people there. What have I done? What have I done? 
to cause you to rebel against me. What have I done? What has he done to you? Nothing but good. Nothing but good. Well, then what will you do with him? Will you rebel against him? God, I don't want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life according to the dictates of my heart. I'm, I'm just going to live my own life in rebellion. Or will you come to that place today, and this is my prayer for you, where you simply say, God, I submit myself to you. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. I want to live in obedience to you. Would you do that? Our Father and God, I pray today that you might search our hearts. And Lord, that we might be honest as we expect others to be honest with us. That we might be honest with ourselves. And Father, as you reveal to us what you see in our lives, I pray that our commitment might be, Lord Jesus, I commit my life to you. Whatever it is you want me to do, I commit my life to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, I pray. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation. If you're without Jesus, would you commit your life to him today? If you're looking for a church home, my door's open to you. If God is speaking to your heart about something else, will you say yes to him? What will you say? Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you should do.